Keyes' research, I think, to read it, it's so data-driven. It's so clear in his writing that what matters is we have conducted these experiments, we've moved from a hypothesis, this is our data, this is what this data shows. Where there are certain blind spots, everyone has blind spots. Science is a human endeavor. And to read his work, it's so clear that he moves from whatever their hypothesis is, and his conclusions are always within the bounds of their data, and then making the speculation about what this data means and moving forward with that. There is a real palpable, irate irony, shall we say, when people like Gary Taubes come along who are so blind, so dogmatic, so uninterested in real evidence. That's Alan Flanagan, and this is episode 159 of The Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. Here we are. An absolute pleasure to be here with you. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, thank you so much for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus 
contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Alan, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. It's uh, it's taken us a while, but we're here. It has. Uh, surprisingly, this is the first podcast we've done together. We chat all the time, of course, and... I really do want to say from the outset, I love your work. I love everything that you're doing with Alinea Nutrition, the Sigma Nutrition stuff with Danny. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm certainly very grateful for all of our back and forth chats that we've been having about nutrition over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely, mate. It's been a pleasure to get to know you over the interweb um, and have a lot of conversations, particularly about the kind of nitty gritty aspects of what we know about diet and health and and what we can and cannot maybe glean from research. And I know a lot of our kind of conversations rests on epidemiology, which I think is great because it's probably the one area that just gets ignored. And that's because of bias against the method, but it's also because people just don't want to get to grips with it because it's a complicated topic. (laughs) Now, given it's your first time on the show, Do you want to give a quick sort of background as to who you are and what you're up to in the nutrition world and what you spend your time doing at the moment? So I am currently, uh, well, writing up my thesis, uh, doctoral thesis, PhD, and the focus of my PhD research has been timing of food intake and the kind of relationship between behavioral factors that influence when people eat and then kind of biological factors, specifically circadian rhythms. So my PhD consists of a lab study that was like a forced jet lag protocol as the first study. And then the second study is an observational study where I've been looking at people's time of day preference, which is known as their chronotype, where you are either colloquially known as a kind of morning lark or a night owl. A lot of people are actually just aren't really either. And I've been then looking at how they naturally choose their meal timing. They're the two main studies in my PhD, but prior to taking on the PhD, I had completed my MSE in nutrition, but I had done it part-time because I was working as a lawyer. So I originally, I come to science from a bit of an odd background. I did history and English for my undergrad, and then I went to law school, and then I became a barrister in Dublin, and I worked as a barrister for 10 years with this interest in nutrition there. Which kind of maybe the the lawyer evidence head <laughs> guided me more towards wanting to learn about nutrition from an evidence based perspective. So I had some good contacts, fortunately, point me towards the University of Surrey in the UK, and I spent two years back and forth from the UK doing my masters. And then when the opportunity for a full time PhD presented itself and a full move into nutrition. I jumped at that and within a year of starting the PhD, then I launched Alinea. And so my day-to-day now is either my PhD research or producing content for both uh, Alinea and Sigma. 
Great. Well, I uh, certainly look forward to hearing what comes of all of the the work with your PhD and, and the thesis. Why don't we jump straight into things here? Ansel Keys, born back in 1904, I, I believe, known for uncovering the link between diet, serum cholesterol and heart disease, and I guess arguably one of the most influential and prominent names in the, in the history of nutrition science, a sort of giant, so to speak. But in recent times, and really the reason for this conversation is there have been certain people that have somewhat attempted to discredit his work. And, and there are many examples, but one example being Gary Taubes, who has been declaring that Ansel Keys is someone that performed bad science, shouldn't actually be called a scientist, I believe he said, and essentially pointed the finger at Ansel Keys for being responsible for the dietary guidelines that Gary and others believe have made us fat and sick today. So that's the context for this conversation. And of course, there's quite a bit to cover. I know you're so well read in this space. Why don't we start off with who Ansel Keys was and and why he developed this interest in diet and cardiovascular disease that he would then go on to test in his own studies. Yeah, I find the denigration of his body of work, uh, particularly as it comes from the kind of low-carbohydrate community, to be just frankly difficult to listen to. To have someone who in any field of science contributed that much by way of original thought, uh, research, and science that has an impact on, you know, you could spend a career doing science that has little meaningful impact in the real world. It's not that it's not important, but it may not actually influence people's lives or health or day-to-day existence. And, And Keyes contributed so much beyond even what he's denigrated for within the low-carb community, which is, as you mentioned, the link between diet, uh, cholesterol, and heart disease. And so for that community in particular, who are a community devoid of intellectual honesty and devoid of epistemic humility, to label someone like this, you know, not a scientist, is um, really testament, I think, to their evangelism as it comes to their own cause independent and, and and no one is is safe from being you know individually attacked if it's in the service of whatever their their belief system is keys contributed a spectacular amount to science particularly for nutrition i mean even before the seven countries study his contribution during the second world war to feeding you know, armies, the U.S. in particular, and it became known as K-Rations after his last name. And he managed to essentially develop this, uh, which were intended for short-term feeding, to be fair. But this was his interest in how to, you know, actually sustain energy intake and, and functionality. And evolving from that was the understanding that starvation or effects of energy, uh, sustained energy deficit over time uh, and inadequate dietary protein intake 
might all have adverse effects on metabolic physiology. And so the Minnesota starvation experiment, which he led, stands to this day as the as the most robust study of human not just energy restriction, but what happens during the refeeding phase, rebound weight gain and, and the trajectory of weight loss and rebound weight gain. Things that we would now understand as concepts like adaptive thermogenesis, um, you know, uh, energy restriction, hyperphagia and all and these kind of ideas. All of it is there and you're unlikely to be able to repeat a study like that in the modern world. I'm not sure if you remember David Blaine, the magician, did this 40 days and 40 nights experiment where he was in the box. And that was an opportunity because he was electing to do that for researchers. So that the study of David Blaine during that 40 day, 40 night fasting experiment was really the the only a decent opportunity to study true starvation in a human being since the Minnesota starvation. Now, the Minnesota starvation experiment, when you look at the actual calorie intake, is quite interesting. And it shows, you know, how much more physically active people were at that time, perhaps, because I think their maintenance calories were like three and a half thousand calories a day. And the starvation diet was give or take about 17 to 1800 calories a day. So it wasn't a total starvation diet. It was a progressive evolution of energy deficit over 24 weeks and then the refeeding period. Keyes' contributions even prior to that are in the same period, kind of through the 30s and 40s, interested because of his background in a more kind of zoology, marine biology, um, his initial PhDs uh, in, in that kind of area, you know, this relationship between body size, surface area and weight um, and building on previous work that had been done by a Belgian anthropologist looking at the relationship between weight and height developed the body mass index. And, you know, we know today there's a lot of conversation about the imperfections of BMI as a metric. But it's still useful, certainly at wider extremes. Uh, there is a gray area with BMI. But interestingly, for a lot of the, uh, I guess, the allegations that get pointed at some of Keyes' contributions, he was such a brilliant scientist that all of these blind spots were known to him. Like He published about some of the limitations with BMI because it relied on some of the, the formulations, relied on measurements of, say, subcutaneous fat, he was aware of the limitations of, for example, considering dietary cholesterol. Like he published in the 1950s. So people accuse Keyes of being the reason dietary cholesterol was vilified, but that's not substantiated by his own research where he said, look, all things considered, dietary cholesterol is really dependent on these other factors, whereas saturated fat and polyunsaturated fats kind of act in their relationship or ratio with each other. So we could be here for days discussing Keyes' contribution to science and nutrition in particular, but it's exhaustive. It goes way beyond the contribution to just heart disease alone. And, you know, ultimately in a kind of poetic justice way, he lived to the ripe age of 100 and, and died in a small Italian town eating olive oil. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned there that he was aware of his limitations and was on record talking about them because I do feel like that is often overlooked and, you know, all science has its limitations, but that doesn't mean that his work was fatally flawed or fabricated. There's a big difference between those two. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, there's two quotes here I can take from Keyes that come from this period where he was conducting tightly controlled human metabolic ward studies looking at the influence of different dietary factors on cholesterol. He published a paper in The Lancet in 1957 where he said, quote, the experiments reported here clearly indicate that the saturated fatty acids, at least those of chain length longer than 10 carbons, have twice as much effect in raising cholesterol levels as the cholesterol-lowering effect of an equal amount of polyunsaturated fat or linoleic acid. That stands to this day. That became ultimately the genesis for what's known as the Keyes equation or the Keyes-Hegstead equation because it was kind of verified again later in the early 90s. But that stands to this day, you know. Uh, even the nuance within that quote, for example, we know that shorter chain saturated fatty acids, like eight carbons in length, tend not to have that effect on plasma cholesterol levels because they're medium chain fatty acids that are kind of metabolized differently. They're absorbed to the liver via the hepatic portal vein and they're, they're oxidized. And, and that relationship between saturated fat and cholesterol ultimately as the primary determinant of blood cholesterol levels in humans stands to this day. But he also followed that up with a paper published in the journal Circulation in 1958 saying that the evidence points strongly to the conclusion that other things being equal, serum cholesterol level in adult man is independent of cholesterol intake, as in dietary cholesterol intake, over a range of zero to at least 700 milligrams a day. Now, we might dispute the range that he had identified at that point, but it's important to remember that the context of those experiments he was doing with up to seven to 800 milligrams of dietary cholesterol was when he was restricting fat intake to less than, say, 15 grams a day. Now, if you do that in humans in a tightly controlled scenario, you can feed them that level of dietary cholesterol and their blood cholesterol levels won't change. But when you add more dietary fat, even vegetable fat, you will get a bump up in cholesterol, although the extent to which blood cholesterol bumps won't be as much with vegetable fat as it would be with animal fat. So something that's important, I think, to really emphasize here is that Keyes was doing clinical intervention trials. And this work here that you're talking to, this is preceding the multi-country epidemiology, seven-country study. And often Keyes is positioned as being someone who was just contributed to epidemiology. And, and he can be picked on for that whilst overlooking that he was very much shaping his hypothesis and the, the sort of diet heart hypothesis through clinical studies as well, as well as looking at other people's research during the late 40s and the early 50s. And, and that's, I think, forgotten in the overemphasis on him. I mean, it's typical for the way that narratives in nutrition tend to be framed. If you want to have a very specific narrative worldview about nutrition and you have a, a certain view that a, a certain diet is the best for human health, so to speak, well, you frame a narrative which identifies a bad guy, so to speak, or a bad group, and you frame it as though, but for this bad group, we would of course know that our diet, our way, would be, you know, universally accepted as the way. 
And so you need this kind of oppositional boogeyman. You need this kind of intermingling of the kind of conspiracy and otherwise. And, you know, we, we can see this now with multiple different diet groups. The emphasis on keys, of course, ignores the actual reality that, you know, as if he was the only boogeyman. I mean, his metabolic ward work didn't get up and going until after others had previously started work in this area. Goffman at the University of, I think, Boston had published a metabolic ward study in 1950 where they had patients who had previously had a myocardial infarction within, I think, the previous three months, for example. And they took them in, or it was a, maybe even shorter. My memory might be, I think maybe it's one month. But anyway, a very recent heart attack. And they brought them in and started measuring their cholesterol levels and consistently found that there was an almost universal trend of their, and at this time there wasn't a differentiation yet between, say, LDL specifically and other cholesterol subfractions. But you consistently saw what was subsequently identified as what we would know now as LDL, very high in the blood of people who had myocardial infarctions. The first metabolic ward study was a study on diet, was published by Kinsel, Lawrence Kinsel in 1952. And that had looked simply at feeding people, again, very tightly controlled interventions, having a controlled background diet, and then either adding 50 grams of animal fat and then replacing it with 50 grams of vegetable fat and then doing the same thing again. And if you look at the charts from those studies, which is interesting now because all the charts and figures were hand-drawn, but it's basically just a, a line that just goes up when animal fat is fed, down when vegetable fat is fed, up when animal fat is fed, down when vegetable fat is fed. So Keyes was building on a body of work that was starting to develop the associations between high blood cholesterol levels and myocardial infarction had been established, although they were associative. But the metabolic ward studies, and there was about four groups involved over the 1950s. One was in South Africa, one was in the UK, and a couple in the States. Really tightly controlled experiments manipulating multiple components of diet clearly showed you know, which dietary factors have the most impact on blood cholesterol levels. So as you correctly point out, because this is crucial, Keyes is doing this research in a tightly controlled context that's giving him a plausible explanation for what the relationship might be seen as in populations. And it's from that and then his kind of wider collaborative work with scientists around the world, which he was excellent at facilitating these kind of interdisciplinary and then international scientific relationships, ultimately allowed for the seven countries study to be generated. But it wasn't starting the seven countries study selectively, you know, choosing specific countries which would confirm his hypothesis, which is as people portray it now, and working backwards from there. The seven countries study was very much coming at a time when a robust amount of metabolic ward data, which is still standing to this day, that body of evidence from the 1950s has never been overturned and has only been corroborated as evidence has continued to be accumulated over the past 70 years. So it was built out of that 
that. And indeed, there are characteristics of the seven country studies, which from a modern epidemiological perspective, we'd say, wow, that was kind of ahead of your time. You had really good comparisons between people with high saturated fat intake versus quite low saturated fat and different components of diet. So it had these contrasts in exposure that are quite important to be able to try and detect effects. So before we kind of dig in, I guess, to the seven country study in a little bit more detail and understand the study design and, and what they observed, what was the hypothesis preceding the seven country study? Where was Ansel Key's hypothesis at that stage? So based on the metabolic ward research that he had conducted, and again, like I said, as other groups had also conducted the evidence for Keyes suggested that the most potent predictor of blood cholesterol levels in adults was going to be the saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat ratio. But specifically, because of the differential direction of effect of both of those, that saturated fat would have the greatest impact on increasing blood cholesterol levels. And from that the hypothesis would be that there would be a correlation between the level of saturated fat in the diet, blood cholesterol levels of the population, and coronary heart disease as an outcome. And, you know, for Key's dietary cholesterol needed to be in the consideration because of the high correlation between dietary cholesterol and saturated fat food sources. But, but he was not of the opinion that all of these factors considered it was an appreciable, important determinant of heart disease in itself. But the relationship was very much focused on the relationship between blood cholesterol levels and heart disease. That was the main kind of hypothesis, is that these two are related. And as far as diet impacted that relationship, it impacted it via increased blood cholesterol levels as a result of a certain dietary fat composition. And so, again, just to frame this a little more, and you may have sort of alluded to it, but why was this particularly important at this time? You know, I think the United States, there was a, a national inquiry into the cause of cardiovascular disease that was uh, late 40s or mid 40s, and, and then the Framingham study and this work of Keyes. Why was all of this sort of just bubbling and coming to a point where, where it really needed to be better understood? Yeah, you have an interesting transition in the Second World War period and then into the post-war period in both the United States and Europe. The time course of these observations slightly differs, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So during the Second World War, Europe is obviously torn asunder, rationing food shortages, etc. The U.S. is obviously a major contributor to the winning of the Second World War, but has the luxury of geography of, of never actually being itself attacked or, you know, subject to any of the kind of restrictions that other parts of the world were experiencing. So with this boom in industrialization that the war brought on, much of these trends kind of, you know, starting to go up even before the war, you have increasing access to more animal foods as a luxury, which prior to that were particularly stratified by class, where you might have had a scenario, particularly amongst working class 
socioeconomic groups where, you know, you might have had the, the big roast or there was one or two meals a week where meat was a centerpiece. Now it was starting to become cheaper, more affordable and more ubiquitous, uh, along with other changes in diet. So it wasn't necessarily just a sudden rise in animal fat consumption. You have a shift in carbohydrate type. You have all these changes occurring in diet. So in the US anyway, you start to see this exponential increase in heart disease. It's accounting for 50% of total mortality in a given year in this period. Now in, in Europe, at the same time, you're seeing different trends. You're seeing decreases in heart disease that largely are attributable to the caloric restriction during that period. But in the post-Second World War period, with the recovery and regeneration of the continent, then you start to see these trends in Europe as clear as the late 1950s and early 1960s start to be equivocal to the United States, i.e. heart disease, cardiovascular disease as an umbrella term, you know, myocardial infarction, stroke, etc., is the leading cause of mortality with enormous annual mortality rates. So as an example, you know, like I said, in the US, late 1940s, heart disease is 50% of total deaths. In the UK, by 1962, it was 180,000 deaths a year are attributable to heart disease. So this is starting to be, from an epidemiological perspective, obvious. There's been a, a dramatic exponential rise in prevalence and it's started to become obvious that it's occurring in countries that we would broadly characterize as kind of western industrialized countries and so this was evident and it was also evident that there were other countries in the world who had similar characteristics for example in relation to smoking but seemingly didn't have quite the level of heart disease that you know, the UK or the US would have, even though the smoking prevalence seemed to be the same. So from an epidemiological perspective, you're starting to think, well, it's clearly not just a single risk factor. It's clearly not just smoking that explains all of the increase in heart disease. It's clearly not just any other environmental exposure. You know, we're driving too much or something like that. So individual groups are starting to think about different risk factors. And there's an emphasis on hypertension, there's an emphasis on blood cholesterol levels, and there's an emphasis on experimental work to to really start to understand some of these more environmental determinants like diet um, and, you know, with an emphasis on factors like smoking and body weight as well. So it wasn't just exclusively on cholesterol, but obviously Keyes's contribution focused more on that. You mentioned the CVD cardiovascular mortality. I want to make sure we come back to that because I think it's important to, as we close out the conversation, talk about how that's changed. Again, something that seems to be often overlooked in this whole conversation around health and how health has changed over the decades with different guidelines. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, 
including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So just to sort of recap where we're up to at the moment, at this sort of the late 50s, there was this emerging diet heart hypothesis. There was these metabolic ward studies, which were clearly showing that different fats in the diet and different ratios of saturated and polyunsaturated fats were differentially affecting serum cholesterol. But of course, you can't lock someone in a metabolic ward for life and do that and see who gets cardiovascular disease. So the next obvious route of science or path would be to go out and look at real life people and this is where, of course, the seven countries study comes in. So perhaps we go into the seven countries study sort of design, who was involved, the seven countries, and what the intentions of the study were. And I guess this is where we start to then come into not only what they found, but some of the common criticisms of Key's work are very central, very related to this particular study. Mm. So seven countries study is, even in the title, somewhat of a misnomer. By today's standard, it would be eight countries because Yugoslavia split. (laughs) And more specifically and quite importantly for the actual findings, what was quite brilliant about the seven country study was the regional diversity even within some of these countries. So the countries themselves were the USA, Italy, Greece, Yugoslavia, the Netherlands, Finland, and Japan. And in modern day terms, the sites specifically that were in the former Yugoslavia would be in today's Croatia and Serbia. 
and the uh, ability to have so for example within greece there was one cohort in crete uh, and one cohort in corfu in japan there was two cohorts in finland there were two cohorts as well the dutch in the us contributed a cohort each and in italy there were three cohorts Again, the former Yugoslavia, there were, um, I believe, four cohorts in total. So what this allowed for was even within nominally the same ethnic population, variances within the diet. So within the former Yugoslavia cohort, for example, you had one cohort on the Dalmatian coast eating a much more typically Mediterranean-style diet, seafood, etc., whereas kind of in the Belgrade cohort, you had a more kind of typical, you know, landlocked European diet, a bit more emphasis on, you know, animal fats and, you know, lower intakes of, of kind of vegetable fats, etc. So you were allowing for even variability within the same nominal population group. So 16 cohorts overall, men that were aged a minimum of 40, a baseline, I think 40 to 60 was the age range originally. And they all kind of started at different times. There was a mix of urban and rural in the actual overall cohort. And the cohorts themselves all got up and running the individual cohorts at slightly different times between the late 50s and the kind of early 60s. And that's because they were led by individual research groups. So it wasn't Keyes directing every single one of these cohorts. Keyes was coordinating as the overall lead investigator. But the cohorts themselves had their own specific on-the-ground team uh, that were leading the investigations. And there was quite a robust amount of baseline data taken in terms of clinical measurements of, of blood cholesterol, blood pressure, body weight. And for Steele Manning, the seven countries study, what it did from a dietary assessment perspective would not necessarily be what we would do now. If you were to run this study again now, you would validate a food frequency questionnaire in the specific cohort and you would use that food frequency questionnaire to quantify diet in that cohort. That's exactly what the EPIC cohort has done. But in many respects, the seven country studies has some characteristic similarities to EPIC. But from a dietary perspective, diet intake was really kind of measured, not really at an individual level, but it was to be representative of the population. It wasn't measured in every individual in the cohort and then used kind of prospectively Diet was measured in subgroups of the specific cohorts. Now, the diets that were measured were robust for the time, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, seven-day kind of weighted food recalls and is, is, is a good way of capturing accurate free living intake, as accurate as one can get. However, that's usually the method that would be used to validate a specific dietary instrument. So there are limitations to the dietary assessment, but it doesn't invalidate the seven country study. It just means that we have to be granular in understanding that we really didn't have individual level dietary assessment that you kind of mean out over the cohort. You had essentially a population estimate of dietary intake. But it's been sufficient given the nature of the outcomes, the endpoints, heart disease and stroke, and then all-cause mortality. With the biochemical measures that were taken, in particular blood cholesterol and blood pressure and body weight, 
has allowed for meaningful comparisons between the population estimates of diet. So you're taking that representative subsample of your cohort, you're doing a, a decent measurement in them, but then you're using that to represent the dietary intake of the entire cohort. So that is a potential criticism, but it was early doors for nutritional epidemiology. The relevant question is, is that limitation fatal, so to speak, to, to the findings? And the answer to that is no, it's not. It, it gives us meaningful data with comparisons, particularly because there were biochemical assessments of blood cholesterol levels and the actual outcomes to be able to conduct more specific regression analysis. And Keyes was one of the first people to really refine and develop the use of regression analysis for these kind of scientific questions. What about this idea that you often see online? You've definitely seen this, particularly among the paleo crowd. This will probably annoy you. Uh, that Keyes cherry-picked countries to suit his narrative, that there were in fact 22 countries that Keyes could have included, such as France, which according to these blogs or low-carb enthusiasts, addition of these countries would have changed the results, but he decided not to include them. What do you make of that assertion and how do you feel about the decision made by Keyes and his team to include the 16 cohorts from the, the seven countries that you mentioned, not 22 or, or some higher number? Yeah, it's just not true. <laughs> I mean, it, just a, a cursory look at the data from the seven countries' uh, cohorts, from the 16 cohorts, is quite clear in terms of the levels of, of saturated fat in the diet. Um, and there is an enormous range. So if the argument is that there were countries with, uh, you know, that, that weren't included with, you know, a high saturated fat content and low risk of heart disease, that tends to get isolated to the so-called French paradox. But I think we even, it's important in today's context that we're granular with what those levels are. So the French saturated fat content averages, right, over this time period, are what we would today know to be in a kind of gray area as far as risk goes, particularly where you're comparing it. So this 14% of dietary energy, you know, 10% the target, it's a bit of a gray area trying to detect strong effects. We also know that the composition of the diet has a relevance here with an emphasis on food sources, fermented dairy forms, for example. And we know that they have less of an impact on blood lipids. So our current understanding could explain some of that potential paradox, but there's way more to, it's not really that much of a paradox when you scrutinize food sources and actual levels of intake. But in reality, what you have in the seven country study is an enormous spectrum of saturated fat content. And that ranges from as high as 19, 20, 22, 24% between the Dutch, the US, both Finnish cohorts, and one of the Croatian cohorts, the Slavonia Croatia cohort, and the inland, the Serbian cohort, for example, down to as low as 6% of energy. 7% of energy in the Japanese cohorts, only 10 to 14 grams a day. And you go to Corfu and Crete, and you're give or take slap bang around 
10% of energy, a higher gram total than the Japanese cohorts, but again, primarily fermented goats, cheese and yogurts. So our current understanding gives us better perspective on the uh, lack of effect, but their overall dietary saturated fat content, not that high. So, so what we have is this huge range of different countries that have varying saturated fat content. And if the allegation is that there were countries not included that had higher saturated fat but lower rates of heart disease, I mean, as an example, the Cretan cohort had nearly pretty much, give or take, the exact same amount of saturated fat as the cohort in Rome, but the Cretan cohort had one of the lowest rates of heart disease in all of the 16, seven countries cohorts. So it's just, it's just not really borne out by the actual data in the cohort. There was a big spectrum of different saturated fat contents of the diet in different populations, allowing for quite informative and, and meaningful comparators between you know, high levels of, of dietary saturated fat to very low levels of dietary saturated fat. And so the overall uh, trend was this association, the more saturated fat in the diet, the higher risk of heart disease. At this stage, was he also looking at that saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat ratio in these various countries? So the P to S ratio wasn't as much of a determinant in the seven countries study because interestingly, the actual variation in average intake of polyunsaturated fats wasn't enormous. So the ratio would have differed. But what was interesting was the primary driver of the difference in the ratio wasn't because of big variation in polyunsaturated fat content. That was fairly constant. The variance was driven by the large difference in saturated fat content. And so in the regression analyses that were conducted to look at this relationship, that was what was jumping off the page. In the 25-year mortality follow-up, saturated fats were looked at with also factoring in smoking and flavonoid intake. Again, we now know dietary flavonoids, polyphenols, seem to be quite protective, a range of kind of cardiometabolic and even neurological health outcomes. But at the time, they had been recognized as important inverse relationships with heart disease. So when they put together, you know, this multivariate model, including factors like smoking and flavonoid intake, so smoking being a strong negative, flavonoids being a kind of moderate positive, saturated fats, the major difference in heart disease mortality rates at the 25-year follow-up mark, 73% of that was explained by saturated fat. So polyunsaturated fats really didn't come into it in the way that saturated fat did because, because there wasn't that much variation in PUFA intake across these populations. The variation was, was quite clearly driven by the differences in saturated fat between the cohorts. Another criticism 
this one's quite easily explained away that I've read was about the Greek cohort. And again, I'm sure you've come across this sort of assertion that the dietary intake data for the Greek cohort was collected during Lent, a religious practice that lasts for about 40 days. And it's sort of a fasting, calorie restricted, less animal product phase. And the criticism was that, well, if you're collecting dietary intake data during that period, then you may be led to believe there is less animal products and saturated fat in their diet than there otherwise would be. But I found it interesting. I was doing some reading on that and they were able to compare their dietary intake that they had during Lent with periods outside of Lent and they were not too dissimilar. And they were able to compare it with another cohort study that was done in Greece around a similar time. And again, it was very similar. So I don't think the sort of Lent criticism really has any weight. I don't think so. And you can look to the later years of follow-up because the seven country study really has continued in long-term follow-up in a, in, a, in a way that really gives us almost more meaningful data over time and I think more validation of, of Keyes's initial hypothesis and again reconciling that with current knowledge it would be consistent but I mean the 40-year follow-up 40-year follow-up is a long time to have follow-up in any in any cohort so the 40-year follow-up of the Corfu cohort for example and you see the same ultimate representations as were derived in the initial cohorts where, for example, you know, the strength of the association with blood cholesterol levels and heart disease, you know, was evident or the, the, the lack certainly in that cohort inverse association. And like I said, it wasn't that their dietary saturated fat content, the main contention of that criticism of the Greek dietary measurement is as if they would have been eating more animal meats outside of length. But we know that that's not really the composition of the contribution of animal fat in their diet, that it is the primary contributor to their animal fat intake is fermented dairy. And so that is a characteristic that was not particularly subject to massive variability, whether it's in or out of the Lent period. That's a good point. So where does sugar and carbohydrates come into all of this? Was that another sort of dietary component that Keyes was looking at? You know, today we've got this data that shows if you swap calories from saturated fat with refined carbohydrates, it's kind of a lateral move or it might even increase risk of cardiovascular disease depending on the study that you, you look at. And this is kind of another criticism that often is thrown at Key's work in the seven country study is, well, he wasn't interested in sugar and looking at the real cause of heart disease and deceptively he's focused on saturated fat. Did he look at sugar and carbohydrates and how do you feel about that claim? Yeah, so there was a competing hypothesis advanced at the time by a UK scientist at I believe, Imperial, named John Yudkin. And Yudkin was perhaps the kind of UK version of Keys, albeit very focused on the impact of free sugars in the diet. And 
the debate between Yudkin and Keyes went back and forth in the academic literature. It's misconceived, again, I would say rather deliberately now by people who would seek to denigrate Keyes and certainly denigrate the diet heart hypothesis in a way that kind of suggests that all of this data was there, Yudkin was right and Keyes just ignored it. It's, it's not the case. The reality is that the effects of dietary sugars at the time were not comparable as far as available evidence went. It was much more difficult to detect effects at the population level with levels of dietary sugar intake at the time. There hadn't been that much of an exponential change in average dietary sugar intake as a percentage of energy. Even if we go back to the Industrial Revolution in the British diet, the kind of early dietary studies at the time added what we would call free sugar intake now was about 15% of total energy, which is at a level that we would consider now would be a risk. But it was also in the context of nutritionally inadequate diets and probably without the sugar, you know, there was there, there were no railroads getting built, put it that way. So uh, as a percentage of energy, food sources also mattered as well. It was difficult at the time. There wasn't as clear a relationship between kind of carbohydrate and blood cholesterol levels. And there wasn't as much of a distinction between refined and non-refined sources. Partly that was because there was an experimental diet at the time, this kind of rice and fruit diet that was often used for gastrointestinal conditions. And it was designed to be a very hypoallergenic diet that people wouldn't respond to with essentially no fiber. And you would basically have white rice. And these diets were sometimes used as a control in some of the blood cholesterol experimental feeding studies. And you wouldn't necessarily see that effect from just feeding someone white rice and then changing their fat content. So although Yudkin had some good, you know, again, became more validated over time hypotheses and, and certainly some evidence to be able to point to a potential role for added free sugars in the diet, the level of evidence at the time simply wasn't there when you compare it to essentially a decade's worth of metabolic ward studies focusing on manipulating fat subtype and considering carbohydrate. The epidemiological associations were certainly not anywhere as kind of clear there wasn't really this contrast in levels of intake between diets in industrialized countries. It was rather constant from population to population, particularly in Western countries. You could get a good comparison between non-Western countries in terms of dietary sugar intake. So the reality is, if we're just coming at this purely from a scientific perspective of objectivity, what is our available data? What does that data tell us? Where does that data point to? It wasn't that sugar was ignored. It's just simply that at the time, the evidence was much more robust in pointing the direction at the relationship between dietary fat, blood cholesterol levels, and heart disease. And we can fast forward now and say, yes, there is a clearer role for dietary sugars at certain thresholds of intake. But look, it just wasn't comparable in terms of the level of evidence. If you're being a good scientist, you're formulating a hypothesis. You know, you're not formulating the hypothesis on the basis of 
the less likely <laughs> possibility in your data. You need something to, to formulate a hypothesis from, and the reality is the data was simply a bit more informative, a bit more thorough at the time for, for dietary fat. This is the what I find interesting thing about the position of Gary Taubes or Asim Malhotra. It doesn't seem to me that this position that they take can see a reality where both saturated fat and refined carbohydrates can be problematic in their own right. It's, it's sort of this, you have to choose one. It's either or, yeah. And that's typical of, of a lot of these kind of, you know, diet movements, right? Again, going back to that idea that you have this one true way and then you have your scapegoat and the scapegoat is responsible for all ills and the a very clear position that we could say now with the totality of evidence and and the acceleration probably from the late 70s onwards in understanding the effects of fatted free sugars and then as our understanding of lipoprotein metabolism because these are not inseparable concepts so as our understanding of lipoprotein metabolism becomes more refined we start to understand that okay dietary sugars you know, they have this effect on, say, liver fat, uh, visceral fat, knock-on effect then on, you know, increasing triglyceride, low HDL. Great. We tease that out as things go along. But the primary reason why sugars weren't as identifiable at the time is because, and this is where a lot of people in this, you know, the Gary Tebbses of the world just contradict themselves. So one of their main contentions is, you know, no one was paying attention to sugar. Then we started eating more sugar. And look, we have like heart disease and obesity, etc. And it's like, let's roll that back. If what they're saying, which is what they argue, is that actually this is all to do with obesity and that sugar drives obesity. Well, then that's even just falsifiable by reference to the data, particularly for cardiovascular disease, right? We are talking about a period, the 1950s and 60s, where population-wide levels of adiposity had not started to project massively upwards yet. People were not, in terms of the overall population level, uh, in anywhere near the kind of levels of adiposity that we started to see from the late 70s onwards. And yet heart disease was killing 50% more people a year than it is now. So heart disease occurs independent of adiposity. It can be exacerbated by adiposity and body fat, but it's not a prerequisite. Heart disease occurs because the arteries clog with plaque and bad things happen to the vascular system. And that can happen and we know now that that does happen causally because of elevations in LDL cholesterol, and there are factors that influence that. Whereas with dietary sugars, the primary influence of sugar is an indirect effect. It's the effect of adding sugar to the diet, creating conditions of caloric excess, and that increased adiposity over time. So the effects of dietary sugar on these outcomes is, is largely more indirect effect, although at high levels you can have the direct effect and the direct effect is the increase in liver fat and the remodeling of LDL. But at the time, you weren't going to necessarily see a strong relationship with sugar because you hadn't started to see these population-wide increases in body fat yet. Whereas with dietary fat and blood cholesterol levels, it's a much more direct relationship that was observable at the time and wasn't necessarily just dependent or strongly dependent on body weight. This is where it's so important to go back and recount nutrition science in a very chronological 
fashion. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. You just mentioned then cardiovascular disease mortality has been cut by 50% since the sort of peak 1950s, 60s where you were referring to in spite of an increase in obesity and type 2 diabetes. Yeah, Um, and this is lost in the conversation. There has been no doubt a shift in the burden of chronic disease. The burden of overall chronic disease is, of course, much greater now than it was in the mid-1960s. 1960s, primarily, we're talking about cardiovascular disease and cancer. And we certainly then developed the understanding of the causal relationship between smoking and cancer at that time period. The fact that we now have a situation where fatty liver, type 2 diabetes, other metabolic disease, the exponential increase in dementia and Alzheimer's incidence only predicted to quadruple by 2050. And cardiovascular disease has been halved in overall mortality, but it's been increasing in the developing world. So the global burden of disease, and even in Western industrialized countries, cardiovascular disease, despite being reduced in mortality rate by half, still is the leading killer. It's still the leading cause of mortality. So the idea that we need to take this really revisionist, ahistorical, anti-scientific view of heart disease as a means of improving population health is a major threat to public health because of the likes of people like Taubes, Asim Alhotra, and other the kind of revisionist, you know, evangelical voices in that space who are are deliberately misleading people into what to do with their diet or otherwise. You know, heart disease rates, that reduction, I think it's important to be clear, is not entirely attributable to just the reduction in, say, dietary saturated fat. Changes in smoking prevalence in the population have been a major determinant of that. The advent of, after the discovery of the LDL receptor, of targeting LDL lowering with statins, and then the development of azetamide, bile acid sequestrants, now PCSK9 inhibitors are just absolutely incredible drugs. There's an incredible array of pharmaceutical therapy to lower LDL, and then the potential adjuvant effects of, you know, nutrients in the context of, say, fish oil or otherwise. And this is why I have such a problem with this movement that would seek to kind of take this very historically illiterate view of heart disease. We're at a point now where we could completely revolutionize the treatment, not just of people with heart disease, but the prevention of heart disease. We know so much now about the primary determinants we're able to directly intervene and treat the causal risk factors, we should be moving to a place where we're dramatically reducing the burden of cardiovascular disease in, in all populations. And this ahistorical movement are standing in the way of implementing that at a population level. So yeah, look, the burden of chronic disease has increased. Things have changed. Our, our, our countries have become more industrialized. We have a food supply and a food industry that is divorced from public health, but the private sector is the primary influence on public health, which is a weird dichotomy, but is a dichotomy that is probably the most responsible for the kind of predicament we find ourselves in. And there's that great saying, you know, in healthcare and in medicine, when you hear of hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. And and I really think we need to just kind of reestablish some reality in the conversation 
and to be able to move forward with what we do know uh, and to point the finger in the right direction as well. Because the one thing that the you know voices in the low-carb community do have right is the role of the food industry in all of this. But unfortunately, they frame that then as part of this kind of all corrupt conspiracy to demonize animal fats. And it's like, no, look, let's just go with what the data tells us. But yes, the food industry is having a you know disproportionately negative impact on people's health. I want to come to some of those specific solutions a little bit more towards the end. I also want to cover off on the kind of anti-statin rhetoric that exists in some parts of the world. What I've heard from you so far really speaks to the fact that as a scientist, his hypothesis, which is central to the diet heart hypothesis, was evolving. You know, at the start, he thought it might have been from dietary cholesterol. And then I believe he thought it was more of a total fat thing. And then he refined that further to saturated fat. And then he's refined it to high saturated fat and low unsaturated fat being problematic. And so he was constantly tweaking his hypothesis as he was going along. It wasn't as though he had developed something and he was setting out to, to prove that right from day one. Yeah, and, and, and that's good science. There's an irony to the people that would seek to portray him in that way because they really are staring at a mirror and not seeing themselves in it. This is a movement that does exactly that. It has a preconceived worldview about diet and health, and it seeks only to move backwards from that preconceived worldview and take any bit of information that upholds that belief that they have and denigrate any evidence to the opposite. And yet they frame themselves as truth seekers. It's the antithesis of the scientific method. It's the antithesis of truth seeking. Keyes's research, I think, to read it, it's so data driven. It's so clear in his writing that what matters is we have conducted these experiments, whether intervention, observational, we have conducted experiments, we've moved from a hypothesis, this is our data, this is what this data shows. It's pure science. And where there are certain blind spots, everyone has blind spots, where science is a human endeavor. You know, Keyes ultimately maintained his view on dietary cholesterol, like that it was literally a negligible, you know, factor in the whole equation throughout his career. Now, we could possibly get to some of the more recent studies that have looked at isolated effects of dietary cholesterol. And we could say, well, no, it's clear that dietary cholesterol does have an effect on blood cholesterol levels. It's just the effect's not very large. But even that, I'm not inclined to hold his view on dietary cholesterol as it was rather inflexible. Against him, he isn't necessarily still wrong. This is the thing. These recent studies that have, you know, multivariate, um, meta-regression analysis and this kind of thing are isolating the univariate, the isolated effects of dietary cholesterol alone. Keyes' whole point was that, yes, there is an effect, it's just the magnitude of it is dependent on other factors. So we can take those studies and you can get this prediction, oh, well, if dietary cholesterol changes by X amount, this is the change in blood cholesterol levels. But then you look at free living studies and it never adds up. <laughs> Whereas you can do the same with saturated fat. And saturated fat changes will largely, as a percentage of energy, explain changes in LDL cholesterol if it goes up a certain amount. So even though these more recent studies have shown that 
his range of zero to 700 milligrams, probably, probably not entirely accurate, but he's still not really wrong on that ultimate point that the full effect of dietary cholesterol is going to be dependent on these balance of other factors in the diet. And to read his work, it's so clear that he moves from whatever their hypothesis is, and his conclusions are always within the bounds of their data. And then making the speculation about what this data means and moving forward with that. So there is a real palpable, irate irony, shall we say, when people like a Gary Taubes come along. You're talking about someone who, uh, Gary Taubes, who, or any of them in that movement, who are so blind, so dogmatic, so uninterested in real evidence. I mean, there's that famous, you know, debate between Taubes and Stefan Guillenet on Joe Rogan, where Stefan Guillenet is just talking evidence, citations, and Gary Taubes is telling stories, you know, and it's just like, and yet, the, and yet they'll point the finger at people doing real science and say, aha, you're just out to confirm your own hypothesis. And it's just like, you don't even recognize in yourself the ludicrous irony of making these allegations against other people. So yeah, I'll, I'll die on this Ansel Keys hill. <laughs> <laughs> to give credit where credit's due, I will say the low-carb enthusiasts, they are good storytellers. And that is something that I, I think, I believe, has certainly helped them. Humans, we love stories and sometimes the actual science can be a little drier, but hopefully sharing some of Ansel Key's history here is is enjoyable for people. I think it's important to, as I said earlier, understand the chronological order of science. And also, it's easy to judge science done 50, 60 years ago based on the advancements we've had and the ability to run these more sophisticated analyses. But the fact his equation and overall what he found still stands up today speaks to the integrity of his science. I think that's just extraordinarily compelling. And something else that just came to mind is because hindsight, it's easy to sort of point the finger when you have another 50, 60 years of information. But speaking to chronological order, this idea that Keyes left France out in 1958, to my knowledge, the French paradox, I believe, was first really spoken about a decade or a couple of decades later. I don't even think at the time when he was putting the study together, that was public knowledge. So that itself couldn't have influenced his decision to exclude them. Not that that's really important because you sort of already uh, spoke to why it didn't matter. It's not a paradox. <laughs> it's just um, there's um, a lot of chronological misrepresentation when it comes to Keyes' research. You know, you see the other thing you'll see in the low carb space is, oh, the six countries thing. And, you know, they, they've got this graph of, you know, which is data, which was just ecological data he presented in 1953, you know, five, five to six years before the seven country study even started. And yet that's conflated with his supposed cherry picking of data for the seven country study. And it's just like, look, the timelines, unless Keyes had... Uh, Keyes was a, an incredibly talented scientist, but the gift of telepathic <laughs> foresight, I'm I'm not willing to attribute to him. So yeah, there's there's all of these different kind of, I think, deliberate conflations 
because it's a chronological period of 70 years we're talking about, it's easy for people themselves who are critics of him to mix and match the time periods uh, or the exact dates on things. But when you really focus on dates, none of it adds up. I have seen that 6 study one and I read a, a few blogs that were speaking about it and they had muddled up the timelines and it became very conspiratorial the way they were kind of piecing it together and trying to show that, look, see, he he actually had six countries and then the study was seven, something's happened here with the data and, you know, they're just not understanding the time between, as you say, that sort of presentation and the earlier graph and then the actual seven country study which was completely different. Change of gear here a little bit. Someone listening may be wondering, okay, so observationally we see people who eat more saturated fat, you know, be it butter or more red meat or whatever it is, they have higher LDL cholesterol and higher incidence of heart disease. And that's a consistent correlation. And in the metabolic ward studies, it's clear you, you lock people up, you control exactly what they eat, you feed people more saturated fats, their LDL cholesterol level goes up. And so we know how to jack someone's LDL cholesterol, how to increase it. I think pretty much everyone is in agreement with the story up to here. And then we see people diverge in their thinking. Some who say, well, that's not evidence that LDL cholesterol is causing heart disease. And others like you and I who say, sure, but there is evidence that speaks to this. What do you say to someone who perhaps has been led to believe or, or even strongly believes that LDL cholesterol is not causal, that it does not independently increase risk of, of heart disease? What evidence would you speak to? I just say they're wrong. <laughs> so uh, it's a conversation I'm increasingly losing patience with because we have overwhelming data if we're being purely scientific about this to the point where even the minutiae and the nuances that people love to say, because this nuance exists, we can't say it's causal. We can explain those nuances. That's how much data we have. So what would I say to anyone who says LDL is not causal? Well, if if it's someone who believes that because they're following, then there's, I'd probably at a point now where I wouldn't even waste my time trying to actually have a conversation with them. For someone who's genuinely confused and has seen conflicting information and is open to actual science and data and reason, we have basically uh, what we would say a coalescence of evidence from every angle of investigation that science uses. We have an overwhelming amount of cohort studies, over 60 prospective cohort studies around the world, linear increases in cardiovascular disease outcomes with increasing levels of LDL cholesterol in particular. And, and even those relationships at higher levels still stand for total cholesterol levels. So people have been like, oh, well, total cholesterol is insensitive. And it's like, in a certain range, but at, at higher absolute levels, again, the nuance disappears because total cholesterol at higher total levels will still have such a high level of LDL within that sum that it's it's kind of irrelevant. We have a wealth of evidence from human intervention studies, trials, because they're drug trials, 
a very clearly defined exposure, like a statin or another drug, and a zero exposure, a placebo. These are trials with thousands and thousands of people. When you add that all up together, you have trials with over you know, 20 million person years of follow-up in the interventions. Over 150,000 cardiovascular events have occurred in these trials. And you compare intervention to lower LDL versus no intervention. You can stratify risk reduction relative to achieved levels of LDL cholesterol, i.e. the lower that LDL gets, the lower someone's risk is. And that's a straight line. And then we can take, okay, so someone's being a complete sophist. They've said, well, uh, observation research is worthless and I don't accept the interventions because Big Pharma sponsored them. (laughs) Okay, fine. Now let's get on to genetic studies. Okay, Big Pharma didn't sponsor mommy and daddy to have a baby. So no one's one's got sponsored to have a kid with a, a genetic predisposition to high or low cholesterol levels. And we can take those populations who have specific, what they call single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs in various genes that predict cholesterol levels. So NLCP1, which is the target for azetamibe, which is a bile acid sequestrant, so it stops your body absorbing cholesterol, and and it has modest impacts on blood cholesterol levels. And then PCSK9, uh, which if you inhibit that, you increase the amount of cholesterol clearance from the blood. And then HMG-CoA reductase, which is what statins act on. Now, what's fascinating is that all of these things that I'm describing, these genes that I'm describing, actually act in different places. So one I described is in the intestines. The other is in a pathway that leads to liver synthesis of LDL, which is HMG-CoA reductase. And then PCSK9 influences LDL receptor activity. And so when it's inhibited, you have more... And so this is the unifying. All of these things, three different pathways, have a unifying final mechanism which is that they increase the activity of the receptor on cells that takes cholesterol out of LDL and into cells, out of circulation. So you take any genetic predisposition to any of these, and you will see if they have the genetic predisposition to low cholesterol levels over the course of their life, they will have dramatically lower heart disease risk, over half the heart disease risk, lower heart disease risk than people without. And then, but because all of them have slightly different magnitudes of effect on blood cholesterol levels, you could say, well, they all have kind of different effects and they're different gene pathways, so they could be doing different stuff. Okay, what happens if we analyze them all through the same net reduction in LDL cholesterol? As if we standardize them to have the exact same effect. And when you do that, every single one of these different pathways all have the exact same risk reduction on heart disease. And the reason is because they all have the same final unifying mechanism. So you can dismiss observational epidemiology because it's observational, and you can dismiss interventions because big pharma, but you you can't dismiss genes and mother nature. And it's as clear as day. And when you then add those genetic studies into an analysis where you're looking at how much risk is reduced from statin interventions and how much it's, in, it's reduced in relation to the observational epidemiology, well, then the picture that emerges is actually the earlier that your cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol is lower, the less likely you are to have heart disease. 
And we can see that in the statin intervention studies. And then you add up all of the mechanistic understanding, which is still incomplete, but people could say, for example, well, how can you say it's LDL when it's inflammation? Well, we can say because you can take people with high inflammation, lower their LDL, and their heart disease risk still reduces. Uh, you can see that independent of levels of inflammation. Oh, well, it's LDL oxidation. That's the problem. Yeah, but we need LDL to go into the artery and be retained there before it's oxidized. And that process of entry and retention is independent of the fatty acid composition, for example, of the LDL. So any line of evidence that you want to look at all adds up to the same conclusion. Yes, there are questions that still need to be further investigated. The cardiovascular sciences community is completely aware of this. But the sum of evidence showing that LDL is causal of atherosclerosis from a scientific perspective is overwhelming. And anyone choosing not to opt that to quote Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, E equals MC squared, whether you want to believe it or not. And that's my attitude to people who would say LDL is not causal. No, it is. And it's true whether you want to believe it or not. Mm. To really test your limits here. <laughs> uh, but Alan, what about large and fluffy particles? <laughs> uh, the, the, the cuddly particles. Yeah. Does the large and fluffy versus smaller and dense LDL particle, does that explain uh, potentially why someone may have higher LDL and not be at the, the sort of risk that you're speaking to from those various lines of evidence? Mm, possibly not anymore. Um, there was a time when the focus on particle size looked like it was very relevant. That's not to say it's not relevant. Small, dense LDL particles are highly atherogenic. But the focus on particle size is somewhat less relevant now because we know that any lipoprotein, LDL or IDL, intermediate density lipoprotein, or VLDL, very low density lipoprotein, and what we would call remnants, so remnants are created when dietary fat we take in through the diet, packaged into chylomicrons, which are like the largest. Chylomicrons can't get into the arteries because they're too big. But when the triglyceride in that chylomicron or in a VLDL, a large VLDL, which can't also, because of its size, get into the arteries, are broken down, you can create these remnant particles, which are small enough. So if they're less than 70 nanometers in diameter they're capable of entering into the subendothelial space. And because they contain ApoB, they're capable of being retained in the subendothelial space. So if that were true, so and, and again, you'll see the denialists contradict themselves because they'll say things like, it's not LDL, uh, it, large fluffy LDL is fine. Actually, VLDL is the problem and remnant cholesterol, that's the problem. And it's like, well, that's the most self-defeating nonsense ever because <laughs> if you're arguing that large fluffy LDL is fine, these are particles of relatively the same size and you're saying that they're atherogenic. So it's a self-defeating argument. So the other factor, and this relates to saturated fat, a huge component of the there's no problem with saturated fat kind of argument is, well, saturated fats raise large, fluffy LDL. It just wants to cuddle your arteries. No. So what we're starting to understand is the cholesterol payload 
in the artery wall is really is really the problem. So as a very simple heuristic for listeners, if I have a large LDL particle, it's capable of carrying more cholesterol in that one large particle. If I have the same amount of cholesterol in five small particles, they may be more atherogenic, i.e. they may be more commonly able to kind of get in, but they still have less cholesterol per, per particle. So if all if that large fluffy LDL particle goes in and all five of the small dense particles go in, the net cholesterol deposition in the artery is the same. And that is moved the focus away from particle size. There is still a relevance for particle size if we're getting really nitty gritty and talking about things like discordance, where someone's LDL, measured LDL, is discordant from their ApoB count, right? These are nuances that are known in the research, but that affects only up to about 20 to 25% of the population. So it's an important measurement in people. From a clinical perspective, it's important. But it doesn't invalidate our associations with LDL at all. And the idea that particle size as it relates to LDL is determinant is really rubbish if people are going to accept that either LP, little a, is causal, or actually it's not LDL, it's VLDL uh, and, and other remnant particles. Well, you know, they're still less than 70 nanometers in diameter. They're often still larger particles than small dense LDL. They still get into the arteries. And if you're saying they're atherogenic, then by implication, you have to accept that large fluffy LDL is atherogenic. But ultimately, it comes back to the cholesterol payload in the artery wall. And yes, you can drive saturated fat up and you can drive up large fluffy LDL and you just get a lot of cholesterol deposition for less particles that are retained. Would you say a, a good peer-reviewed paper that speaks to this is the European Atherosclerosis Guidelines paper from Brian Ferentz? So I think that the two papers that the EAS have published, the first is the Brian Ferentz-led 2017 publication that examined the human evidence for LDL causality factoring in epidemiology interventions, genetic studies, and other work. And then for people who would start saying, but inflammation, but oxidation, etc., then read the second part of that paper, which was led by Jan Boren, published in 2020, again, European Heart Journal. And that dealt specifically with the mechanistic side uh, in great detail. Um, and explained a lot of these kind of interactions and what we know and where we don't know, you know, things like coronary artery calcification, you know, so there's a bit of a, a paradox there. Athletes have measured high levels of CAC, but low levels of blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I would, I would encourage people to read both really, um, but start with the 2017 Ferenc-led paper. Brian Ferenc then also published a paper he wrote himself called Lessons from Genomic Studies, where he really elegantly compares what their genetic studies have told them against what interventions have, have conducted. So for someone to get granular then with the influence of genetic studies on this evidence base, I'd, I'd encourage them to read that. Cool. Well, we'll make sure for, for those who are looking to do a bit of extra reading, deep diving, that'll be in the show notes. You mentioned the trials that use statins, lipid-lowering drugs, and that gets me uh, wondering, why do you think that statins in particular have 
developed such a, a bad name in particular sort of circles when the studies are quite clear that they do decrease mortality? What's going on here with this anti-statin rhetoric? What's, what's going on is it's all part of the story and the story's compelling. So the story starts with Ansel Keys. This one guy comes along, he demonizes animal fat and animal fat is obviously what our ancestors ate apparently. Uh, and so Keys rubbishes our ancestral consistency out of the diet. The sugar industry sponsor him to get dietary guidelines. The dietary guidelines come in, obesity rates go up. And of course, the food industry is in collusion with the pharmaceutical industry. So once we all start getting sick, the food industry is making money, then the pharmaceutical industry profit off the food industry making us sick by giving us drugs because the food industry made us sick. And it's it's such a good story. It's all bullshit, but it's such a good story. Um, So... That's their narrative, and it's a simple narrative. It's got a simple scapegoat. It gives people a bad guy to focus on. It gives people a conspiracy to engage in. The more COVID has come along, the more it's become apparent that the low-carb community in particular are essentially a conspiracy theory group. And, you know, and you've seen these prominent anti-statin skeptics, anti-cholesterol, like as in LDL skeptics, are suddenly not really that active anymore because they've all become COVID denialists and <laughs> anti-vaxxers. So it's been interesting. It's like, oh, where's this guy? He's been quiet the last year. Oh no, he's 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 now on COVID. Like <laughs> it's like, oh, right. So what is the deal with that? Well, I think it feeds into the big pharma narrative that they've got. I think there are, you know, assumptions that are easy to kind of jump to, like, for example, the money that the pharmaceutical industry have made from certain statins, although even that's kind of now less of an argument you could stand over because many statins are generic and they're not profited from. I think there's also the fact that, to be fair, with the emergence of of statins, there was, through the 90s, seemingly a kind of development of a lot of hyperbole over side effects of statins. And that is something worth paying attention to. And a lot of the more recent statins and the ones that are used for high-intensity treatment seem to be better tolerated. However, there's a couple of things that I think are really interesting. And I'm on the Heart UK advisory panel, and there was a the Heart UK 2020 conference I sat in on a talk by a guy who led a trial called the Samson trial. And this was fascinating. So if you go back to the early statin trials, despite anecdotal reports of people saying that they experience myopathy, some muscle pain or fatigue or even low libido, and any side effects we should be taking seriously. However, in the actual interventions, there was never any evidence that adverse effects were greater in the intervention group compared to the placebo group. So fast forward 20 or 30 years, and it's very known in primary care and in in cardiology and in practice that many people do come back and say, Doc, I I just don't feel great. I've got cramping in my legs or my libido's low or I'm just fatigued all the time. I, I I don't want to be on these drugs. In the age of the internet, it's very easy for that individual to find a forum somewhere online of a lot of other people who may have had similar events uh, or experiences. And then it all becomes, you know, oh, they, they gave us these drugs, they're bad, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's very easy for stuff like that to propagate. So begs the scientific question, do statins really give people these, you know, effects? 
Or is there potentially something else going on if there's no reported difference in the interventions between the treatment and placebo groups? So the Samson trial recruited people who had been on statins and had come off statins by their own request to their primary care physician because they were self-reporting a series of side effects. So what the researchers did was take these people and for one year, they gave them 12 pill bottles, uh, one for each month of the year. Uh, I think if I remember, four bottles contained statin, four contained placebo, and two contained nothing. So there's just there was no pills in them. But they were random in their order, and the participants didn't know what they would be taking. So they either knew there was a pill in it, but they didn't know whether it was a statin or a placebo, or there was nothing in it. So they did know when they were taking nothing. They do this for a year in random order. So you, you might have a month of statin, a month of placebo, a month of nothing, a month of placebo, a month of statin, this kind of thing. And the main outcome is side effects. And at the end, obviously the months where they were taking nothing, there was no expectation created. There was literally no reported side effects. The reported side effects were identical practically between the months they were on the placebo versus the months they were on the statins. So this is really telling us the kind of power of the nocebo effect. And it's likely that a lot of the bad press that statins have got when someone is in primary care facing their primary care physician saying, look, I'm going to recommend you go on simvastatin. If there's someone who in their head immediately conjures up, oh my God, I'm going on a drug, I've heard all this bad stuff, then it's likely <laughs> that they're kind of nociboing themselves into self-reporting an adverse effect. And it really just there's a, another example of the power of the mind. Um, you know, the medicine, I think, is starting to really appreciate in many of these. We've seen this with, in a less contentious topic, for example, sham knee surgeries, where they've put people under the knife, given some people keyhole and some people just a sham surgery. They just cut them open and stitch them back up. And then a year later, they're like, who's got knee symptoms? And the people that underwent the sham surgery are like, I'm completely fine. You know, so, but... The relevance of this coming back to statin therapy really is that it is unlikely, based on the available evidence, that there is definitely a subgroup of people who do experience genuine side effects, but this widespread prevalence of these drugs as having more harm than benefit is simply unsupported by data. Well, that sounds like then, if that speaks to a large percentage of the side effects, well, at least we've identified or, or appear to have identified something that could potentially be resolved or worked upon through more effective communication to stop or limit, reduce the demonizing of these medications and to try and reduce some of that fear that a patient has from the outset. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And and to have it be very collaborative in terms of, you know, patient input and you know, I have a lot of my friends that are primary care doctors, and it's it's definitely a big conversation within medicine is, you know, how can we bring the patient back into the fold? And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Trish Greenhall. She's been the kind of critic of the evidence-based medical model in a productive way. And uh, she publishes kind of widely on this. But one of the examples she used in a paper where she was critiquing overemphasis on just using a chart 
rather than dealing with the individual in front of you, was an example of someone experiencing myopathy on statins. And she's like, okay, so the chart tells you that based on this person's factors, you just need to tell them to basically shut up and continue on the statin. She's like, that's not practicing medicine, you know? You have an individual in front of you who is reporting this stuff. How do you navigate that? And uh, that's a conversation that delves into the kind of psychology and the the dealing with people aspect that I really just I'm glad I don't have to do. <laughs> so, I like data <laughs> numbers. It's a good point, though. I mean, whether something is explained through uh, nocebo or through the drug itself, the person is experiencing a real effect. So, you know, that's important just to sort of keep in mind there to consider. So coming back to LDL cholesterol here as we sort of wrap up this conversation, despite all of this overwhelming evidence in support of lowering LDL cholesterol, usually at this point of a conversation with someone who may be a bit of a skeptic, they'll point to a few different clinical trials, interventions. They usually surface at this time. Uh, and you'll be very familiar with these, the Minnesota coronary experiment and the Sydney diet heart study. And often these are kind of brought to the table in the same sentence through the meta-analysis in 2016. And I, I wonder how you feel about these studies. When I say they're brought to the table, they're put forward as clinical studies that speak to the contrary of all of this evidence we've spoken about and in fact show that swapping saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat in the diet while it might lower cholesterol doesn't lower risk of dying from heart disease. Yeah, so with any studies that purport to kind of invert a body of knowledge, it's important to kind of stop and pay attention to them. Are they outliers that we can explain by reference to the wider data? Or are they a genuine falsifying of a previous position? Because in science, they could be either. With both the Minnesota coronary experiment, which Keyes was involved in, and with the Sydney Diet Heart Study, and with the ultimate kind of reanalysis of these studies in a meta-analysis, the answer on reconciling the data is, is quite clearly the former. They are not standalone studies that falsify a body of knowledge. They are studies with significant methodological flaws that are reconcilable by reference to the wider evidence. So Sydney Diet Heart Study is probably one of the most commonly cited. It was a small RCT in Sydney between the late 60s and early 70s, and it was uh, under 500 men, 30 to 60 years. And they had also suffered a recent coronary event. So it was secondary prevention, pre-statin era as well. So baseline saturated fat intake was about 16% in all participants and 6%. And that was kind of representative of the, the general diet at the time. And then the intervention group were asked to increase their polyunsaturated fat to 15% of energy in replace of saturated fat. So the idea then would be that saturated fat would be inverted, essentially, that you would take it from 16% uh, down to about 6 or 7% and that PUFA would go up to 15% energy. Now, what was interesting was that after three and a half years, the intervention group had a higher increase in all-cause mortality. 
it wasn't statistically significant, but it was a large magnitude of difference between the two groups. So what becomes problematic about Sydney Diet Heart was the intervention wasn't a clearly defined intervention, uh, which is really important for a well-conducted RCT. They were given two intervention foods, essentially. They were provided with safflower oil and they were provided with a safflower-based margarine known as Merrickville margarine, a brand at the time which had a fatty acid composition that reflected typical margarines in the US. The problem is that at the time, hydrogenated fats, which we would now know as industrial trans fats, were added to these oils to make commercial margarines. So the safflower oil itself, as far as we were aware at the time, would not have contained industrial trans fatty acids and would have been a more a pure kind of PUFA, polyunsaturated, high linoleic acid oil. But the margarine likely contained anywhere from 25 to 40% of its fat, of its fatty acids as trans fats. And the intervention group did significantly increase their polyunsaturated fat intake. And we know that trans fats are, are unequivocally associated with a significant increase in cardiovascular disease. But this study ultimately will never be able to reconcile because everyone's dead <laughs> and we don't have data on what proportions of each the margarine or the safflower oil, the intervention participants actually consumed. Now, based on what we know about trans fats, we can make a reasonable inference that they primarily consumed the margarine. And that is a, an inference. People will point to that and say, well, no, it's likely the linoleic acid. But that's not even possible because we know that margarines at the time, although using hydrogenated polyunsaturated fats in their overall fatty acid composition, were predominantly monounsaturated fats. And then you've got this high level of trans fatty acids. There's so many variables that we'll never be able, we simply will never have the data to reconcile that I don't think Sydney Diet Heart should be cited in any respect, for or against, because of our inability to resolve it. Nonetheless, this reanalysis did derive some more data, this 2013 reanalysis from the study authors, the surviving study authors, and they concluded that there was this statistically significant increase in cardiovascular disease mortality and heart disease mortality because the original study only reported on all-cause mortality. But again, it's a very weak statistic. There's a lack of statistical precision in the result. Then there's also these issues with the fact that the margarine likely contained anywhere from 25 to 40% trans fatty acids. And so if it's going to be an outlier, then we could consider, well, how does this stack up with the rest of the evidence base? Okay. We know that with omega-6 linoleic acids, there are a number of human interventions that have uh, looked specifically at increasing polyunsaturated fats with linoleic acid. If we include Sydney diet heart, in the overall evidence base of these high PUFA linoleic acid interventions, then we would see no significant effect of replacing polyunsaturated fat with unsaturated fat, or with, with saturated fat, or saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat. If you remove just Sydney Diet Heart Study, that suddenly becomes a 21% reduction in cardiovascular disease risk from linoleic acid intake. And you could even then be even more 
kind of methodologically nitpicking and say, well, the remaining studies in that analysis, if you're looking at seven to nine studies that have looked specifically at this, well, some of them have methodological flaws. And then you could go, cool, we'll exclude all of those studies that, that have these kind of various critiques and we'll include only robustly controlled studies where diet was fully accounted for, where the intervention lasted a minimum of two years, where the data is available. That would lead us with four studies. And if you analyzed only those four studies with the highest methodological rigor, then replacing saturated with polyunsaturated fats will clearly show a large magnitude of benefit in reducing risk. Uh, the same goes for the Minnesota coronary experiment. The primary limitation is that it was not a continuous intervention. So because it was conducted in an inpatient setting, but the participants were in and out of psychiatric hospitals. So they were inpatient, they were on the diet or control, and then, but then they would often leave, go back out into the real world, we've no idea what they ate, and then they would come back in. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, it was not a particularly strong magnitude of effect. And again, the kind of precision, the confidence intervals are just kind of spread eagled across the, the null, such as we, we can't really infer any sort of direction of effect from it in the first place. So Minnesota coronary experiment was a poorly executed study. So both of these studies are not what we would term of methodological quality. And as a result, you know, their citing is simply by people who cite it because they tell them what they want to hear. But the totality of evidence shows them to be outliers that are not representative of the overall evidence base. I think this is also reinforcing a great point that Professor Christopher Gardner made on this show, that a meta-analysis does not just automatically equal gold standard. And you can have a meta-analysis with a lot of rubbish studies. And in many cases, you can get a better idea of a true effect by looking at single, very, very well-controlled, well-designed studies. So it's a, it's a good reminder of that. Yeah, uh, particularly for nutrition science. Like there's a Sander Greenland quote from the early 90s when he said that no statistical technique can overcome the fundamental limitations of the input data. And, you know, he, he talked about the mindless agglomeration <laughs> of, of studies into a meta-analysis. And that's what we've seen with nutrition exposures in particular in the last decade is this proliferation of meta-analysis. I think because it's not particularly difficult to do, you know, there's plenty of software as you plug in your things and go and so you have groups all over the place that publish these meta-analyses and come up with these spurious findings and they're not representative of the overall evidence base. And uh, I question the methodological quality of a, a huge chunk of meta-analysis that are conducted on nutrition-related questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really have to look past the fact it's a meta-analysis. You have to really look at the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, because it is easy or relatively easy through your methodology of the meta-analysis to try and, and create a desired outcome if that's what you're trying to do. If we kind of zoom back out here again and, and think big picture and, and almost sort of carry on from earlier when we were talking about the 1980 dietary guidelines. When someone says, you know, Alan, look, the 1980 guidelines told people to eat low fat and look what happened. People got fatter, people got sicker. 
as if this is evidence that we should have never told people to limit their fat intake. And today, I think total saturated fat intake, at least here in Australia, is around 11 to 12% of total calories, probably similar in the UK. And the USA is around 12% as well, which is still higher than the sort of 10% threshold that you mentioned before. And you've noted that cardiovascular disease mortality, although often overlooked, has been slashed by about 50% since 1960s. And my question to you is, if you look at that cardiovascular disease mortality sort of curve, it does seem to be coming down and now it's sort of plateauing a little bit. Uh, in order to further reduce cardiovascular disease mortality and really squeeze it out of society as much as possible, if the environment was actually set up in a way that made it easier for more of the population to follow those guidelines, that public health would improve from here? Yeah, un unequivocally. When people make statements that dietary guidelines caused uh, or were responsible or the messaging was responsible for causing an epidemic of overeating, essentially, they have to be, of course, able to show that the dietary guidelines were ever followed in the first place. Of course, they weren't. We, we just know that none of, for the most part, the targets are being met. It took 30 years for the UK recommendation on total fat to come anywhere near 35%. It started up around 45%. We have to factor in, when we're talking about diet in percentage terms, the change in total energy intake. So that change in total fat as a percentage of energy is coming with higher absolute fat intake. And this applies to carbohydrate, it applies to protein. You want to look at fruit and vegetable consumption, that increased too, because everything increased. People ate more of everything. So... The contention that it was dietary guidelines that precipitated this is just, it's post hoc fallacy. It's literally, here's point A, this thing rose after point A, therefore B was caused by A. Uh, and it's unsupported, again, by any data. If we look at dietary guidelines from a food-based perspective, we can see that that's never been complied with. If we can look at dietary guidelines through a percentage-based perspective, it's it's also, we're not even there yet for something like saturated fat, although close. So it's it's a ludicrous contention that's just not supported by any, any data or even just kind of thinking about it logically, really, in terms of the post hoc fallacy. In terms of where we're at now, okay, so would dietary guidelines, if people were able to follow them, yeah, well, we have a nice example of that in the UK, a randomized control trial known as the Cressida study. And what they did was take a control group of people consuming the kind of standard British diet. So their saturated fat, sugar, sodium, all reflected population averages, not the current guidelines, in the control group. 13% of energy from saturated fat. Butter is the primary kind of added fat um, in addition to kind of animal produce. Low polyunsaturated fat, low omega-3, low fruit and vegetable, higher sodium intake, etc., low fiber intake, I think around the 13 gram a day kind of average. The intervention group then was counseled to do the replacements that would be recommended. So they replaced butter with a polyunsaturated spread. They replaced refined with whole grains. They increased fruit and vegetable consumption. They consumed more oily, the two times a week fish recommendation, one being oily, etc. 
uh, reduced sodium intake, low sodium products, etc. Low fat dairy, extended full fat dairy. And the impact on their cardiovascular risk factors, the primary outcomes, blood cholesterol levels and hypertension, blood pressure, were such that we would expect to extrapolate that at the population level to a 15% reduction in cardiovascular mortality over time and a 30% reduction in risk of cardiovascular events. So the idea that the dietary guidelines would, would not improve cardiovascular health is, again, a bold assertion that isn't supported by data. Now, why can't we get people at the, at the mass level in the population shifted towards diets that are not the current you know, food industry-driven, hyper-palatable, energy-dense, low fruit and vegetable, low polyphenol, low fiber, so many characteristics of this diet that are similar across countries, industrialized countries. And now we're seeing this transition happen in Asian countries like China. You compare national data for the Chinese characteristics of diet 20 years ago to now, you know, total fat, 20%. Now it's 33%. It's near a Western kind of average. So this is an issue if we're talking about countries like Australia or UK or the US, that is primarily suddenly nothing to do with food. It's a socioeconomic and essentially political issue. We have scenarios where in the turn of the 20th century, during the Industrial Revolution, and indeed prior to that, the risk for being in low socioeconomic income brackets in a society, the working class at the time, was not nutritional excess, it was nutritional inadequacy. And that has been inverted on its head in the post-Second World War period, where the risk to be financially disadvantaged in society is now to be exposed to massive overnutrition because those products are the cheapest available. And this goes way beyond any single one variable. We know that single-person households, single-parent households, independent of socioeconomic status, are more likely to have diets high in energy density. We know that availability in a local area is a massive determinant of fruit and vegetable intake. We know that even kind of in utero exposures to malnutrition play out then in, in, in the offspring in terms of predispositions to risk. We know that the barriers that stratify along socioeconomic lines are even things like time, cooking skills. So, for example, people will always say, well, anyone can learn to cook. Actually, if you look at data, you'll see that people that are well off have less cooking skills than people in lower socioeconomic strata, but they have more capacity to buy their way to a healthy diet. So we've got a massive problem with the fact that the biggest influence on public health is the private sector. But in countries like Australia and the UK and the US, the prevailing free market fundamentalist socio-political ideology and economic ideology is the major barrier to undertaking the kinds of interventions that would actually make a meaningful difference in food supply, availability, quality, and otherwise. We have already seen that if interventions like taxation for sugar are effective. They work. What's lacking is the political appetite and capital in countries like ours, which kind of embrace a very open form of market neoliberalism. 
it's very difficult to persuade people that, hey, let's regulate industry. Let's stop advertising junk through social media to vulnerable population groups, adolescent children in particular. The park breaks just need to come on. And we can spend hour after hour talking about dietary determinants, nutrients, foods, all of this stuff that makes a healthy diet. And we'll just talk ourselves in circles because we know more than enough about good dietary patterns and human health to improve people's health. That's not the problem is not a lack of knowledge. The problem's not a lack of knowledge. The problem's a lack of really reframing this. And hopefully our generation will as a political issue. And maybe then some incremental change will start coming in. But our lack of knowledge about what a healthy diet is, is not the problem here. I'm glad that you touched on all of that complexity. It's something that I think about a lot, you know, if we, if we zoom out and you look at all of the different kind of diet tribes, most people agree on at least half, 50, 60, 70% of things. And it is a very privileged conversation to be talking about everything else when we can't even get the foundations right. And as you say, this is more complex than just looking at a can of beans and and seeing that it's, you know, 99 pence or, or $2. There are a myriad of factors that go into the quality of someone's diet. Price is one of them, but there are so many other factors. And I, I couldn't agree with you more that hopefully we can start to see changes on that side of things, you know, systemic changes that make healthier food more available, more convenient to a greater number of people in the UK, Australia, all, all of these countries that are being affected. You spoke to a few sort of swaps then, you know, at an individual level, if someone is listening now and they're in a, a position of relative privilege to make these changes and act on it, what are sort of one or two levers that you think people can kind of pull to get the best bang for their buck? Yeah, I think if we're making this relevant to current trends in countries like ours, then, and by reference to current evidence for cardiovascular disease, then I actually think that probably the lowest hanging fruit that's available for people to pick is a dramatic increase in their dietary fiber intake. <laughs> Ironically, given everything we've talked about is dietary fat. But the lowest hanging fruit, the lowest hanging fruit based on current averages of 11 to 14 grams of fiber a day, I, I think the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, the greatest magnitude of effect and the lowest hanging fruit would be to get that up to 35 and for someone eating 11 to 14 grams of fiber a day, that's not going to be something that, you know, uh, it's going to take some, some conscious effort. And food sources in particular, obviously, are going to have to become a, a focus. Secondarily, it comes back to dietary fat. And people will argue, okay, look, you know, 13% in the UK, 11, 12% in Australia, 12, 13% in America. Like, what's the magnitude of benefit to getting down to 8%? And it's like, there's a couple of things there. It's not just the absolute reduction in saturated fat. It's the replacement. And so where that to be replaced with a combination of, of poly and monounsaturated fats from plant and potentially marine, if, if it's within an individual's current ethical framework for eating, then that's also a change that would, based on what we know, be expected to make a meaningful difference and a beneficial difference. And if those two, 
you know, the dietary fiber and the fat modification so that you've got saturated fat in a range of what we might say a Mediterranean or traditional Japanese range of, say, you know, 7 8%. And the majority of fat, irrespective of someone's total fat intake, is then made up with plant-derived monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats from a mix of marine and plant sources. Then I think between those two simple changes, I say simple, but what I mean in the context of someone who's able to make those changes and has some nutritional awareness, and the food-based interventions that can facilitate that are things like looking out for whole grain versions like oats. Again, they have particular properties with their fiber that is benefit for cholesterol levels, you know, beans, legumes, oils like olive oil or rapeseed oil. You know, those kind of oils for dressings and cookings and, you know, replacing, say, butter with a, a polyunsaturated spread. You know, they're all easy things to do. Nuts as a kind of snack. And interestingly, one of the relationships between nuts and cardiovascular disease may more be to do with their phytosterol content than their fatty acid composition. And thinking about food source as well. I mean, if, if someone's consuming... 10% of their diet, 11% of their diet from saturated fat, but they're, but they're predominantly consuming foods like yogurt or cheese. Would I be worried about them getting that down to seven? No, probably not, no. So food source matters. But they're the simplest, broadest recommendations is get fiber up and get unsaturated fat up and replace that, you know. So in both scenarios, to get fiber up, you're replacing refined with whole grain and, and other kind of fibrous food sources like legumes. And then to get unsaturated fat up, you're replacing that with saturated fat. So I think that's a brilliant summary. And it drills home an important point that we we have kind of alluded to, but haven't spoken in detail, is that it's not about low-fat diet. In historical conversations, there have been these kind of low-fat crazes. But what we're talking about here very much is there's different types of fats. And in fact, these unsaturated fats, the monounsaturated that are found in abundance in uh, olive oil or rapeseed or canola or the omega-3, omega-6 polyunsaturated fats in nuts and seeds and seafood, if that's uh, within your diet, these are all very health-promoting fats. I think that's a beautiful summary and and also a reminder, I'd love to have you back on at some stage and we can dive into polyunsaturated fats a little more, particularly omega-6 and inflammation because I know that's another topic that, of course, you love to talk about. So hopefully you can come back and join me for that. Alan, thank you uh, so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think Ansel Keys would be proud. It's uh, He's an easy target given that he's no longer here to defend himself. So I'm glad that we were able to to walk through a bit of the history of his role in nutrition science and set the record straight on his incredible contributions. Thank you very much for having me, dude. It's not a problem. I can't believe it's already over two hours. It's been a fascinating episode. More detailed than some of the other ones, but I'm sure there'll be many listeners that are super grateful for your time here. If people would like to connect with you to read your work online, what's uh, the best place to find you? So pretty much three outlets. So the only social media that I kind of run is um, my Instagram, which is at the nutritional underscore advocate. And then you can find my website at alineanutrition.com. Um, and you can then also find written articles 
uh, that I've produced for SigmaNutrition.com. And Danny and myself also have regular podcasts that we put out kind of once or twice a month. So you can also listen <laughs> over there as well as read. And I should note the latest two episodes, was it Quack Asylum or Quack? I'm not sure what the title The Quack Asylum. The, the Quack yeah. <laughs> Asylum. Yeah, I, I love all the episodes you guys do, but I found those two very informative, instructive and, and enjoyable. So guys, get over there and listen to those. You will not be disappointed. All right. Thanks, Alan. Let's do it again soon. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. There we go. How did that one land for you? I hope that you found it interesting, instructive, illuminating, all the things. Of course, if you did, please do share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And on that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.